Well, good morning again. If you would, take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Colossians. We are certainly getting closer to the end and working our way towards that final verse. I think we should have a party or something. I don't know, but I don't know about you, but that's this, you know, the time to celebrate, you know. It's been a great pleasure, a privilege for me to have the occasion to work through this epistle with you, and I'm enjoying this last section of the epistle. Um, it's, it's funny how we oftentimes approach these segments of Scripture with really not much concern or inquiry into them, but there's really quite a bit there uh, in terms of the depth and, and the purpose behind communicating to us about these important people. Um, people who have been lost to the ages in many ways, even to the church itself. And I trust that you've come to have a greater sense of the importance of these people that have been recorded here in this epistle. Interestingly enough, in Colossians, this is one of the longer um, exits from an epistle as it relates to the greetings and exhortations that are contained. Um, oftentimes are limited to one or two verses, maybe just one verse in terms of a greeting or a naming of a person. But here Paul really gives us a, a great list of people. And what we're going to find today is that when we look at the passage before us, uh, the latter part of verse 13 and 14 and 15, we're going to get a picture of the faithful and the fickle um, in, in this, which is interesting as to how the Lord would bring these people to mind knowing how they finished. Some very well, others not. And there's quite a contrast here. And it serves as a real warning to us and a reminder um, of how we need to be attentive to where we are in the faith and holding on to the truth um, is so, so important. And so we need to be mindful of that. And that's ultimately, I think, what Paul has for us here today. And we'll look at that this morning, Lord willing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll get into the passage. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for our time together. Thank you for um, providing this facility, providing this time uh, and place. We know there are many around the world today who would love to be a part of something like this who cannot um, for a variety of reasons, economic, political, all of those things, and people who are paying the price even for wanting to and trying to assemble. We pray for them. We lift them up to you. We pray that you would protect them and keep them, enable them to endure through these difficult and challenging times around the world. We pray that you would give the leaders of our nation wisdom. We lift them up to you. We pray for their salvation. We pray that you would work in their hearts, that you would bring people into their lives. We understand that you have ordained government for a purpose, to do that which is good, to promote that which is good. Often we do not see that, and we pray, Lord, that you would guide and direct according to your sovereign purpose as we know that you will, and that you will bring people into their lives to proclaim the gospel, and that you would open their eyes to their need for a Savior, and that you would save them, we pray. We pray, Lord, that you would open our own eyes and hearts this morning as we, again, look at these characters from Scripture, from the history of the church that you have given us today in these passages to remember and to reflect on, we are mindful of the fact that your word is given to instruct and guide and direct, and 
there are lessons to be learned from those who are set before us, both in terms of churches and people. Thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. May we leave differently than we arrived. Bless us, keep us, open our hearts and eyes to receive your word, we pray this day in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at Colossians chapter 4, let's begin at verse 7. Always good to go back and get the context, the reminders of the people that we've looked at so far so we don't forget them. As to all my affairs, Tychicus, our beloved brother and faithful servant and fellow bondservant in the Lord, will bring you information. For I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of your number, they will inform you about the whole situation here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, sends you his greetings, and also Barnabas' cousin, Mark, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And also Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are from the circumcision. They were Jews, and they have proved to be an encouragement to me, Jews who were saved through the message of the gospel. Epaphras, our dear friend Epaphras, our favorite pastor from the Lycra Valley, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. Luke, the beloved physician, sends you his greetings and also Demas. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. Say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my imprisonment. Grace be with you. Well, as we continue to work through the passages that we have before us and the characters that God has set before us, we understood that Epaphras was just really quite a remarkable pastor. What a great encouragement has been to me, and I hope to you too, to see this standard set before us. And it helps us then to discern better and to know better who ought to be in the pulpit and what the responsibilities of a earnest and faithful pastor is. And so we have come to know him quite well, and we understand that he has a great burden. He's concerned about ultimately what is going on in Colossae. He makes a great journey, and he communicates to Paul. And I think in part two, what he was also communicating to Paul is that there's a concern that he has about the presence of this false teacher. Um, when he mentions at the latter part of verse 13, Paul says here, I testify for him that he has a deep concern for you, those who are in Colossae, and for those who are in Laodicea and Heropolis. That's interesting because I think what's going on is that this false teacher is making the circuit, or ones like him, who are rising up or going into churches communicating in the same form or variations on the error that this false teacher had brought into the church in Colossae. A spiritual mysticism focused on legalism and a, 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 a kind of a static kind of experience a special type of temple experience, worship of angels. I mean, it was a train wreck, complete train wreck. And certainly Epaphras is concerned about that, as you and I ought to be concerned about that. And so he is also 
praying earnestly, hard toil is the idea, this painful toil for those individuals as well. It's interesting that these two locations are mentioned because we do know about one of them for certain from Scripture. We'll get into that in greater detail, but Laodicea has a reputation of its own. Little is known about Heropolis in regards to the church that was there or what was going on or the influence of error or other issues, but certainly there's a concern on the part of Epaphras that he is indeed praying for them in the same manner that he's praying for the believers in Colossae, which again is significant. These were neighboring cities to Colossae. Uh, Laodicea was about 12 miles from Colossae and Heropolis about 15 miles. So it was in that same economic region, impacted by a lot of the very same things that Colossae had been, likely experiencing the ramifications of a significant earthquake in that region that occurred at approximately the same time that this was written um, and uh, would have been an experience for them as well. The same economic issues are at play perhaps less in Laodicea, which was, as we'll find out, a very wealthy city, as was the church in Laodicea. And apparently that was something that would ultimately consume them in some respects, as we'll find. And so we find, though, that Epaphras is concerned just not about the local church, but the church universal, the church within the area. He's praying for them. He's doing so to the point that it's considered to be painful toil. And Paul is a witness to this, and that's significant for us to be mindful of. Um, he has a sense of urgency about preserving the truth. And again, I, I want to emphasize that. What we do learn from Epaphras is that he deeply cared about the integrity of God's word and that people were grounded in the truth, that they weren't being persuaded by the error that was coming in. And I will submit to you that there's so much error today coming into the church, it's frankly difficult to keep up with. I mean, I'm getting information every week, all week long from different sources about different things that are being taught and advocated within the church, and it's remarkable. And, and little to anybody is saying much about it. I know that we talk about it here and we communicate certain things about it, but at the same time, a lot of churches don't and participate in promulgating the error, which is a real problem. We need to be concerned about the preservation of the truth, and we need to be supporting and encouraging those ministries that are engaged in the propagation of the true word of God and who are calling out the error that is so prevalent within the church today. Well, we move then from verse 13 into um, verse 14, and we begin to see then a cast of characters that is quite intriguing. Uh, the mix here is remarkable, and there are a lot of lessons to learn from these passages here, 14 and 15 um, and 16, as it relates to the content and the people that are referenced. Well, Luke hardly bears any introduction. Paul here makes specific note of him and refers to him not only as a physician, but the beloved physician. And we find that Paul often uses that descriptor before introducing the person's name. We find that in verse 9 with Onesimus. We find it with Tychicus in regards to referring to them in the context of his love for them. Beloved, it's a deep-seated 
feeling of affection and connection that he has for these people as it relates to their participation with him in ministry, caring for him while he's in prison, concerned about him, praying for him, ministering to him in that way. It's very likely that Luke was even able to assist Paul with perhaps ailments or injuries that he would have sustained from beatings and other types of abuses that he received, which are well recorded in Scripture. Um, we don't know what type of medicine he practiced. I don't know if what he was doing in that context. In all likelihood, he was just uh, a general doctor who was able to help people and to aid them with what uh, was plaguing them or, or challenging them that way. But what's interesting, though, too, is that he was a great physician of the soul as well, that he cared about the hearts and minds of people, and he cared about teaching people the things of Christ. Of course, if we go back to the Gospel of Luke, and let's go ahead and do that for a moment, we get a sense of the heart of Luke. Luke, of course, is subscribed with the authorship of at least two books of the Bible, and he is the only Gentile author in the New Testament, significantly. He, of course, is the author of the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts, and I believe my perspective on the book of Hebrews is that he recorded and wrote down a sermon that Paul preached. I believe that the book of Hebrews is a sermon that Paul preached and that Luke wrote it down and it was recorded in that manner. Uh, it makes sense to me for a lot of reasons as it relates to the nature of the Greek that's used within the book of Hebrews. It correlates well with Luke's other writings. Luke was a very significant Greek scholar and used a higher level of classical Greek than we find in other epistles, um, which is significant and may speak to his background in medicine and his training in education as well. But we find that Luke had a great heart for people. He wanted them to know the gospel, and importantly, he wanted them to know about the person of Jesus Christ. Remember, the gospels are given to us to record and to reflect upon what it is that Jesus did that proves that he is the Son of God. It is information that you must believe in order to be a Christian. If you reject what's contained in the gospel, you're not a Christian. They're not, they're not optional. Do we understand this? There's a lot of movements around today that talk about the idea that what's contained in Scripture isn't something that we necessarily have to believe. Andy Stanley is a great proponent of this. And he has a lot of people that attend those churches that he's overseas down by Atlanta. Thousands, tens of thousands of people. But Luke would reject that, and Luke wants us to understand information about Jesus Christ so we can hear that and hearing it, look at it, and through the process of faith, trust that what is said is true about him and know that, in fact, he lived and he, he did the things, he healed people, he raised people from the dead, he indeed is the Son of God, he is God. That's important. You'll notice that in the Gospel of Luke, it's interesting that the Gospel of Luke really emphasizes the, the, the healing ministry of Jesus Christ, his ability to heal people. And it's perhaps because that Luke, as a physician, would, have, would emphasize that and be concerned about it and would have recognized it and would have noted it. But there's more reference to that in the Gospel of Luke than the others in terms of that aspect of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And so Luke then, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the Gospel and he writes as follows, 
in chapter 1, verse 1 of the Gospel of Luke, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Theophilus, we don't know really much of anything about him in the context of church history, but apparently he's an acquaintance of Luke. Luke knows that he has been exposed to the things of Christ, to the witnesses of others, and in a further development of that and to present to him further evidences and facts related to Jesus Christ, he then writes this amazing gospel, which is remarkable. What a great evangelistic effort on the part of Luke. An effort who perhaps he didn't appreciate at the time would carry through centuries. Here he is writing a letter to a friend, in essence, saying, I want you to know about Jesus Christ and I'm going to communicate to you that which I have heard and was told by others who were with him, who witnessed these things. And so I'm going to put this down for you so you can study it. And lo and behold, what happens? You sit here today in Beloit, Ohio with it open in your lap. Isn't God good to you? Isn't it wonderful that God, through all of history, would preserve this, that you can sit here today with that open before you, hearing it proclaimed from the pulpit to have it and to treasure it? Young and old alike now are the beneficiaries of Luke's generous acts towards his friend Theophilus, just as we are the beneficiaries of the faithful ministry of Epaphras and others that we'll find in this passage. It's remarkable how God works. Think of all the things that could have happened to that papyrus script, transcript, and how God kept it and preserved it. Carried on camels and mules, on ships, in people's pockets. And here it is today for you. It's remarkable. It's remarkable, frankly. Think of all the things that we don't have from that period of history in the context of things being recorded and preserved. And here we have this incredibly detailed account. Oh, well then, I would say to you, in the witness stand, did you not have access to this book? Did you not have the opportunity to read it? Did you read it? But I did not know. Oh, but you had an opportunity to know. You knew or should have known. Right? Indeed. And so people are without excuse. But we find here then Luke, our friend, the good doctor, a Gentile, is noted by Paul. A stalwart and steady fellow. We know from the book of Acts that he was part of some of Paul's missionary journeys. He was traveling with Paul. He's a fellow laborer referred to in Philemon 1, or verse 24 in Philemon, if you want to say Philemon 1.24. He was with Paul in Troas in Asia Minor during Paul's second missionary journey, as we know from Acts 16. He was also perhaps part of another journey that Paul took later on and may have even been the man of Macedonia whom Paul saw in his dreams in Acts 16.9. He was also left in Philippi during the second missionary journey. We know that from Acts 17. And again, picked up traveling with Paul in a third journey from Acts 20. 
He also was with Paul on his journey to Jerusalem and Rome and was with him during his imprisonment there. We know that from 2 Timothy 4. We also understand that Luke makes a very vivid and descriptive uh, description of the travels he had with Paul in Acts 27, indicating that he was well-traveled and very familiar with navigation and sailing. He had an outstanding command of the Greek language, which is evident from the text. If you're a Greek scholar or have studied those things, it would be evident. I will communicate to you that although I'm not a Greek scholar, based upon what I've read and studied of his writings, they are indeed at a higher level. He has a rich and extensive vocabulary. He's very descriptive, which you would expect from a doctor, right? You would expect the level of detail that he provides. And indeed, the Gospel of Luke contains a great deal of detail um, as it relates to what he would communicate about Jesus Christ and he, his work on earth. So there you have Luke. There you have this great character from Scripture and one that we ought to note and remember. God here is reminding us through this passage to reflect upon a person such as Luke. Why is that? Well, I think it's for a couple of reasons. One, we understand that um, even though Luke had a place in the world as a physician, he could have done a lot of things with that. He was involved in ministry. He was an evangelist. He cared about the lost. He cared about them both physically and spiritually. He cared about those who were involved in ministry. He loved Paul. He traveled with Paul. And we know that those journeys were not easy journeys, that Paul was exposed to many things as well as those who traveled with him, and that many of the abuses that Paul would have suffered would have been extended to those who were his companions. And so we have here this great example, a person who makes personal sacrifice, a person who is concerned about the lost, a person who takes great lengths to write things down so people remember them and have an account for them. This is, why, this is why we have this before us. We know that he's beloved by Paul, and that's significant. And like Paul, we too ought to love him and cherish him and look forward to seeing him and meeting him. It's interesting, too, that Luke sends his greetings. Luke sends his greetings to the believers in Colossae. That's unique. He's tied to them. He's concerned about them. Obviously, he's part of what he's hearing from Paul and Epaphras in the context of the errors that's coming into the church. And so he, too, is concerned. He's exhorting. He's encouraging. Perhaps he's watching Paul write this, and he is indicating that he, too, is concerned about the error that is coming into this church. Just so many dynamics. We don't want to engage in too much speculation in that context, but certainly the passage lends itself to understanding that Luke was concerned about evangelism, about ministry, and about the work and person of Jesus Christ, as we should be too. So I think that's why he's here. I think that's why we need a reminder about Luke and to not forget about him. Interestingly enough, Luke was not a disciple. He was not an apostle. Um, he was somebody who was saved, obviously, through the ministry of Paul, most likely. And God uses him then in a very powerful way, which again speaks to the idea that, that, that God can use just ordinary people in the context of the proclamation and preservation of the gospel. And he saves them, and he uses them in a significant way. And so those are some things about Luke that we can understand and perhaps put into our 
uh, hat and keep for future reference. Well, now we move to Demas. Ah, Demas. Demas. According to church tradition and history, he was a lawyer. That, you know, enough said, right? As Shakespeare said, first we kill all the lawyers. Well, whether that's your sentiment or not, and I hope it's not, I will tell you that for the most part, we're a good lot. We're nice guys. We try to be anyway. But Demas here, unfortunately, is going to be remembered for something else. It's not that he was perhaps a shyster lawyer, I don't know. But what I do know about him is that he was part of the ministry with Paul. Now, I, I don't want this to be lost on you. In all likelihood, Demas was an elder. He was engaged in the preaching of the gospel. He was engaged with Paul and others. There are references to him. We'll see him again in Philemon. But then again, of course, there's a reference to him in, in, in Timothy as it relates to him abandoning Paul. 2 Timothy 4.10 says that Demas has forsaken Paul. The literal language expression there is that he left Paul in a lurch. Have you ever been left in a lurch? You ever been doing something or involved in a project with somebody else, and all of a sudden, in the midst of it, they're gone? They leave you in a lurch, don't they? Did you like that? No, you didn't. That's frustrating. You're in the middle of a project. You're working on something hard. You're involved in it. I had that happen to me one time on a big case. I'm working along. I'm doing all this work with this other person. We're plowing through it. It's a difficult case. All of a sudden, in the midst of it, this guy vanishes. Like, where are you? He's gone. He's gone. Well, it happens, and it's not something that we like. And so we have a contrast here. And we have a lesson that we need to be attentive to as it relates to understanding the significance of what is recorded. For me, it's significant that Paul would record this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So let's not lose sight of that. Again, I said before that what we have is a contrast between the faithful and the fickle. And we see that here. What a, what a contrast. I mean, Luke is the picture of faithfulness. Luke is, the, is kind of the picture of one who is doing what you ought to do as a believer that way. But Demas then is here, and we find in a period of time, here apparently things are okay. Um, he makes mention of him. Apparently he was known to the folks in Colossae in some context, a name that perhaps would have been familiar to them in some way. Maybe he had been there, passing through in some way new Epaphras in some context, it's not clear. But he was certainly a known figure and a significant figure, enough that he bears mentioning in this passage, and we find then that he ultimately then abandons. If you want, we can turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. So we find in 2 Timothy 4.10 a reference to Demas again. 
verse 9, make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So he leaves and goes to Thessalonica. Thessalonica at that point in time was a wealthy city, kind of opulent, known for its involvement in the theater and arts and high life, uh, a wealthy city, a city where people would go to vacation and play, in essence, in some respects. Uh, maybe like a modern-day Las Vegas, who knows, in the context of what we know from history. But nonetheless, it's significant that he leaves and he goes there, and Paul notes where he has gone. Demas abandons Paul. We don't know what happens to Demas in Thessalonica. We don't know if he ever returns in the context of being involved in ministry as and restored. It's not likely. Most commentators that I read of regarding Demas indicate that Paul's commentary here indicates to us that Demas was never one of the faith, that he was a mere pretender, that he was just playing the game, that he was like John would have said in 1 John, was of us but went out of us. He departed from us. He left and abandoned. Having seen and partaken in so many things, he then walks away and leaves Paul in a lurch. Well, that's not how we want to be remembered, and we don't want to be fickle like Demas. We don't want to be faithless like Demas. And it's a stern warning to us. I think it's a good reminder. Why would God give us this? Why would God give us Demas in, Coloss in Colossians? And then remind us in 2 Timothy 4.10 what happened to him. I think it's a warning about what can happen to people. That you have to examine yourself and see if you're in the faith and that you have to make certain that you understand who you are in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Are you a mere pretender? Are you just playing the game? What we'll be find ultimately, too, is that those who are mere pretenders can't stand the heat when it's turned up and they leave. Demas would have been seeing what happened to Paul. He would have experienced the things that happened to Paul in some, in some extent, knowing that Paul was imprisoned and dealing with things, ultimately would give his life. Demas was saying to himself, I don't want any part of that. I'm not doing that. And so he left Paul, and he left him because of what? He loved the present age. And I think it's significant that Paul says that. So in verse 10 of chapter 4 of 2 Timothy, Paul notes this. Now pay attention. It doesn't just say that Demas left me. It doesn't say for Demas has deserted me. That's bad enough. But Paul gives the reason for the abandonment. He notes that Demas loved this present world. What is this world? What does the world offer? It offers all sorts of personal pleasures and fulfillments in that context, but it doesn't offer what the Lord offers in any context. It offers the exact opposite. It's significant that Paul doesn't say that Demas liked or wanted. He says that he loved. He loved it which meant it is a heart desire. It's something that he wanted. It was so strong, so powerful, that he would leave Paul for it. That's, in, that's, a, that's a significant note. Paul uses similar imagery when he speaks to the idea of money. 
Money isn't the root of all evil. It's the what? Love of it. And so something usurps your affections to the point that it overcomes you and controls you. And this is what we see with Demas. He loved this present. Notice that. Present, current, world system of living, thinking, acting, doing. He wanted that. And he left. So most biblical scholars believe that Demas was not a believer. That he was one who perhaps sprung for a season but was burnt out in the sun. One who left and abandoned in a time of need, the true colors being shown. A great contrast between these two characters that we have here in Scripture. Well, going back to Colossians, we continue to see that Paul unfolds for us these characters. Again, there's reasons why God has given us. I think it's really unbelievable. It's almost mind-blowing in many ways that we have this example in the same verse. These two people, Luke and Demas, in the same verse. You can't get more contrast in the context of of faithful service and, and reckless abandonment, which is what we have. Take heed lest you fall, right? Is that what Scripture says? Indeed it does. Take heed lest you fall, and Demas did. Verse 15, greet the brethren who are in Laodicea and also Nympha and the church that is in her house. Well, this is quite interesting, and, and there's a lot that can be said here. Um, there's not much known about Nympha. Um, there's even argument whether or not Nympha was a man or a woman, and I know the NASB says in her house, but other passages, I think the KJV says his house. Um, and so there's an argument over transcription and designation of, of the, the language in terms of whether or not Nympha was a man or a woman. Nonetheless, we understand that there's a house or a church in the house, and, which would have been common back then. Um, historically speaking, at that point in time, um, churches didn't have the ability, people assembled like this would not have had the ability to buy a location or a, a building to hold a church in, so they met in people's homes. Other than perhaps the church in Philippi, there's been some interesting archaeological discoveries that indicate that perhaps the church in Philippi had a building or met, was meeting in a, pub, in a building that was part of the city and that they either rented it or were given access to it. There's been some indication from archaeological studies that that may have been the case in Philippi, and that they had a public assembly that way, which is interesting. But nonetheless, um, just a little tidbit for your noodle to chew on. But we find, though, we f- this interesting passage here in verse 15. Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. Wow. What do we know about the church of Laodicea? Well, we know some, we know some things. Apparently, at one point in time, we find that um, this was a church that was thriving and flourishing in some ways. There were brethren there. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Don't lose sight of that fact. 
Greet the brethren who are in Laodicea. Well, who are brethren? They are fellow believers, are they not? Those who are part of the church and body of Christ that way. And at this point in time, when Paul is writing, there are believers in Laodicea to whom a greeting is extended. It's likely that these believers, like the believers in Colossae, are being impacted by this false teacher as well. And that there is a concern. In fact, Paul will later say, give this letter that I'm writing to the Colossians to the Laodiceans and take the letter that has been sent to the Laodiceans and read it to the Colossians. That letter is likely Ephesians. There's, you know, in, in the context of that issue, there's not a it's not likely that there's a separate letter to the church in Laodicea, an epistle. It's the letter that was given to, to Laodicea and was being communicated, and, and these letters were being circulated. It was likely Ephesians. And so the book, the epistles of Colossians and Ephesians, and perhaps some others, Philippians maybe in the mix, is be, are being exchanged amongst these churches and circulated that way. That's how it would have, would have worked. So we do know that there apparently are believers in Laodicea. We understand that um, Laodicea um, is a, a place that is, is well off. It's an um, uh, opulent city. It's a, a, a rich city in many respects. Um, it's a city that um, is, is generating money for people. It's apparent that there are people within the Laodicean church who are wealthy and who have ultimately, as we will find, fallen in love with their wealth. And the wealth kind of takes the church over. Let's look at Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Verse 14, this is the same Laodicea, some 12 miles from Colossae. Now, don't forget what's going on in Colossae. You got a false teacher who comes in and takes everyone's, or is trying to take everyone's eyes off of Christ, right? Giving them something that appears to be of value, as Paul would say in chapter 2, verse 23, but is of no benefit to the soul, basically. Legalism, mysticism, and worshiping of angels, it's a train wreck. This, in all likelihood, has gone into the church of Laodicea. This is why Paul says, give this letter to them, read this letter to them too. They got the same problem. We know that Epaphras is earnestly praying for those in Laodicea. He's concerned. He's very concerned. This is what happens when error isn't checked. Okay? Now, whether you believe that Revelation was written in close proximity to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, maybe the late 60s, or even later in AD 95 or in the mid-90s, somewhere in that range... 
what we find is that the church over, this church over a period of time becomes worthless, becomes worthless. There are no longer any brethren in Laodicea is the implication. Now, I want you to think about that. We've got two examples that were being given at the conclusion of this epistle, Demas and Laodicea, all right? These are really stern warnings for us. Look at what he says in chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. You think you might want to pay attention when that person is talking to you, all right? I know your deeds, that you are neither cold, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Remember, I told you that Laodicea was known for its wealth. This had gotten into the church too. There's nothing wrong with wealth but there's something wrong with it when you love it, right? You're just a steward. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know, what you are, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Wow. That's what he's saying to them. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire, you want wealth, you need my gold, right? Look at the contrast here. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. Not temporally, but spiritually and eternally speaking. And white garments so that you, be, that you may clothe yourself and that you, the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And eye salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So there's all kinds of problems here. They're blind, they're naked, they're, they're without Christ. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. But look at this, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Now, wait. If you've got a picture in your house with Jesus standing at a door knocking at it, you got a problem. You got a second commandment issue perhaps and you've misinterpreted the verse. Jesus is not walking around knocking on people's doors hoping that they might answer and get saved. It has nothing to do with that. Can you hear me on this, please? Can you please hear me? You walk into a Christian bookstore, within four feet you're confronted with this. You're going to get catalogs this Christmas from all sorts of Christian places, and it's going to have, behold, I stand at the door and knock, can you please get saved? kind of stuff. That's not what it means. In fact, the, the picture is a very pointed one. The imagery conveyed is Christ standing at a church, knocking at a door, wanting to be welcomed in, and he's not. Why? Because they are dead. It's a dead church. 
Behold. So the idea there is this. Pay attention. Listen. When Jesus says behold, he means behold. Behold, I stand at your door and I'm knocking and you're not hearing me. That's bad. Note, Paul writes and refers to them as brethren. At some later time, this church has become so consumed with itself, loving the present world, that they are full of dead people and don't even hear the word of Christ and will not welcome him in. This is a dead church. You can have dead churches. They can be as dead as a doornail. Oh, they may gather every Sunday. They may sing. They might even crack their Bible. But they're dead because they are not hearing the words of Christ and they do not love him. Demas loved the present age, the present world. Notice the emphasis on this. These people are lukewarm. They're neither hot nor cold. They're indifferent. They love their wealth. They're comfortable in their wealth. They have all they need. Things are good in Laodicea. Temporally speaking, but not spiritually. Dear friends, this is a sober and stern warning to us. What a reminder. What a picture. God is painting at the end of the book of Colossians, for Pete's sake. What a contrast. A church that have brethren in them, maybe brethren, I don't know. <laughs> Slip of the tongue, oops. <laughs> maybe I meant it, maybe I didn't. But now what? Anybody going to get it? No. They sit there in sinful silence and they do not open the door. Wow. Wow. And he spits them out of his mouth. Take heed. Take heed lest you fall. These are, these, are, these are important reminders for us as a church and as individuals. Epaphras would pray and call the Colossi believers to stand. Don't forget the gospel. Don't forget what you've been taught. Love Jesus Christ with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Stand. The Laodiceans didn't. Demas did. Now where are they? Eternally separated from God in the context of his love, but experiencing his full-orbed justice. These are good reminders for us. It's good to be checked. 
The good news is this, Jesus Christ covers our sins. We have examples, others' examples of here. Mark, who was not very good at one point, is restored. We see other faithful servants maintaining and holding on to Christ through it all. Keep our eyes on Christ, individually and as a church. And may God never stand at the, church, at the door of Community Bible Church and knock and not be heard. And my, and my prayer for you is that you would not forsake Christ for the present age. It's so easy to do. Check yourself. Check yourself. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the reminders that we have in your word. They're challenging to us, and there are many unique things that we experience through our lives that can be difficult, but I pray, Lord, that you would help us to stand and help us to hear your voice, and may we um, receive your blessing in that context. We invite you in. We want you to be here. We worship you. We adore you. We love you. We can always do better. Forgive us for not loving you as we ought. Keep us and preserve us in the challenging times and days in which we live. We pray for our own state this week. We pray that you would guide and direct in a way that we bring glory and honor to your name. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.